Billy Corbin, friend of the program, friend of the station, joins us here on Good Morning Amigo. Billy, ¿cómo estás? Hola, mi amigo, ¿cómo estás? You could not have sound more old and Cuban with that one, my man. How are you doing? Yeah, you, you, got, you, got, you got to capture that, like, cigar-ravaged yes. voice. Like, you have to, you know, you have to, you have to feel my guayabera through the phone, you know. You just... Bro, you did that voice perfect. That's scary. Like, I have uncles that sound like that. <laughs> I, I have uncles that sound like that. <laughs> Believe me, synagogue gets crazy on Shabbat. I'll tell you. Oh, my goodness. Listen, Billy, the bottom line is, is brother, you know that it's not fair because I'm a big fan of yours. So I'm going to always say how great things are. But in watching all of this, you do such a great job of taking us back to those moments and helping us relive certain things through visual, through B-roll, but most importantly, through the interviews and how you get some of these characters to be so candid. So right off the bat, right from episode one, there's one of the former drug dealers. I can't remember his name. He's the polished-looking old man. Um, that I went, this is, this is the Bosch of this one. Like, this is the guy that's going to make me laugh every time he comes out and says something. And sure enough, he was zany and crazy. Uh, this was a work of yours that you, I know you put a lot of blood, sweat, and tears in it, and not only it's a, a labor of love, but might be one of the best things you've done, if not the best thing you've done. Talk to me a little bit about the mindset. I know where you go when you come up with these ideas because you lived in Miami your whole life and you understand it, but man, to paint that picture and to make that story the way you do, it, only you can do it. Tell us a little bit about, behind the mindset of what brought this idea forth for you. You're such a pro that, like, that intro was so seamless that, that many people might not realize that basically what you said was that I'm such a fan that even if this sucked, I would still tell people it was good. Unfortunately, yeah, that's the so, truth. <laughs> it's, it's a real bit of a, bit of a bait and switch there. I don't know. I'm, I'm not sure this is a backhanded compliment Oh, or no. Not. Frank, is it a compliment? You know me. Is it? A, I didn't give him a compliment right oh, yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's not fair, bro. Like, I'm going to always say your stuff's the best, but... You know, it really is good. This one's dynamite, dude. This was unbelievable. Thank you. Well, I, I mean, it, you know, this is the fourth release in the Cocaine Cowboys franchise, but it is the first story that we wanted to tell. This was supposed to be the story of Willie and Sal, uh, Falcone and Magluda, uh, who were indicted in, at the time, the largest cocaine trafficking case in U.S. history. They were accused of smuggling over 75 tons of cocaine worth over $2.1 billion, billion with a B. And this was the story that we wanted to tell in the first Cocaine Cowboys documentary, but we couldn't. Um, it was the early 2000s when we started working on that, and uh, Sal Magluta's second trial had just ended in 02, and the wounds were still fresh. You know, the story hadn't ripened yet, and people were not ready to sit down on camera and tell the story. And so we made Cocaine Cowboys, the first documentary, as a plan B. That was our backup plan, actually, um, when we couldn't tell the story of Los Muchachos, uh, the boys. And, and we wanted to do that because, you know, we are native Floridians, lifelong Miamians. And this was a story that we grew up with. My producing partner, Alfred Spellman, in fact, when he was in middle school, uh, he was dr driving in carpool on the way to Little League, and his best friend's father was driving. He was an attorney, a very prominent criminal defense attorney, on the Willie and Sal case in the early 90s. 
and he's yelling into his car phone. Remember the car phone, speaker phone? Yes. Kind of integrated system. Yeah. So he's yelling into his car phone about William Sal and the two, you know, the 75 tons of cocaine and the indictment and the evidence seized at the mansion and Lagorse and all this stuff. And that's talk about an only in Miami carpool ride, you know? <laughs> um, you just picture that. That scene. And then I go to high school. At, uh, I went to high school at New World School of the Arts in downtown Miami, which is a fraction of a block. It's literally around the corner from the federal courthouse where Willie and Sal were tried uh, during my, not my, I, it's my junior year, 95 to 96 in high school. I keep saying it's my senior year. It's my junior year in high school. I'm making myself older, uh, but not that that's necessary. But <laughs> we're old uh, The yeah, I think so. So, and then when we were in college at the University of Miami, that was Sal's second trial, 2001, 2002, also the year of the last uh, Miami Hurricanes National Championship, RIP. Oh, so, yeah. So, but like this, this experience and this story of Willie and Sal, who, by the way, everybody knew by their first names. Nobody said Willie who or Sal who. When you saw a newspaper headline or a Chiron, you know, in, in the local news, it said Willie and Sal. Everybody knew who they were. Someone in the series says there may be six degrees of Kevin Bacon, but in Miami at that time, there was only one or two degrees from Willie and Sal. So this was a, a, a labor of love. It was a passion project for us, and we worked on it for 12 years. Uh, you know, Billy, I, know, I mean, I know you said that Cocaine Cowboys was a plan B, um, and I think that everything happens for a reason. And the fact that you guys weren't able to put this story out in your original Cocaine Cowboys, I think it makes the entire series of the Cocaine Cowboys amazing. Because I feel like the original Cocaine Cowboys, you were able to paint a, a bigger story about how the actual game was. And now you've already gotten the big story out of the way. You've already painted the big picture. Now you're getting into it. Now you're getting into the cracks. And you're really showing us one of the stories of the many stories that were with the whole Cocaine Cowboys. I, I, who, who's this guy? He's the, he's the brains of the operation. Yeah, he is. He's the guy that I runs mean, this place. I'm his boss just on paper. Like, this guy, he, he gets it. You're serious. Oh, all right, all right. Enough of you, amigo. Let me talk to the other guy, all right? Uh, <laughs> this guy knows what the hell he's talking about. He sure does. Uh, I, that was a, an exceptional uh, observation. You know, like, we actually wanted to incorporate the micro story of Willie and Sal with the macro thesis of the first documentary, which was you know, cocaine money, the narco dollars generated during this era, what I think is the only successful case study of Ronald Reagan's trickle-down economics is Miami in the 80s during the cocaine boom. We wanted to integrate them into the same story, but, it's, but he's absolutely right. We, we, we got the exposition out of the way. We got the macro and the big picture out of the way. You don't need to see any of the three former, you know, previous cocaine cowboys, cocaine cowboys or cocaine cowboys two or Cocaine Cowboys Reloaded, to totally follow. This is a standalone story, the Kings of Miami. But it is kind of helpful as uh, exposition of Miami and historical context. I think you, it enhances the value and the viewing experience of, of the Kings of, of Miami. Um, but I'll, the more interesting point, in terms of getting down into these specific stories and granular details, um, is that when we started this project 12 years ago, and started to accumulate this archive of amazing interviews with cocaine cowboys and cooperating witnesses and uh, criminal defense attorneys, FBI agents, U.S. attorneys. We realized there's so much great material here, like gold, and so many twists and turns 
in this story. You know, a lot of people back in the day, a career in the drug industry before you wind up dead or in jail would maybe be, I'm guesstimating, five years tops. These guys worked for like 20 years. So this was like a multi-generational crime family saga. And uh, you can't do that in two hours, you know, in a one-off documentary like we did the first Cocaine Cowboys. And the problem is, when we started this, there was no such thing as a documentary series. Correct. The, the business model just didn't exist. So you were either doing a one-off feature doc, like two hours, or you were Ken Burns. He was the only guy who could do 10-hour documentaries. On baseball, um, right. Or, <laughs> exactly, or jazz, or the Civil War. and you know, Or you were doing an ongoing series, like American Greed, right? A thousand episodes, you know, right. for 10 years or whatever, you know, but there was no, there was no such thing as a six, seven, eight hour documentary until the one, two punch of the jinx on HBO, making a murderer on Netflix. And suddenly we realized in the middle, we had been working on this project for so long that someone invented the business model that, <laughs> that we that needed, to, needed. Tell, sure. to tell the story in six hours. Yeah. I think it's genius. I think I'll earn some brownie points here cinematically with you. I think it's genius how you do the flashback. So, you know, basic, you know, theater and film classes, they teach you about flashbacks, which are hard sometimes to make your, your viewer follow. I love the chronology with, like, the timestamps, and you would slide back and then slide forward. It left nothing to the imagination about where we were in a period of time as you were telling a story, and I thought the visual of that was... was was genius because while I could follow it because I'm from here, like I'm imagining somebody from Idaho watching it, they got to follow it a little closer. They got to try to understand who all these Hispanic people are on this, you know, on this tree that looks like a crime organization, the Gambino crime organization tree. But ultimately, it's telling the story uh, that you do so well. And you're right, Frank hit it on the head. The you know the the first part of this uh, cocaine cow is it was like the big picture it was from the 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 plane in the sky. This now we kind of dig into the minutiae, into the dirt, and roll up our sleeves a little bit and find out some great stories. And the best story to find out is the one that Sal walks out of jail. Uh, they, they found the fugitive and then he walks out. I'd heard that story before, and that's crazy. By the way, I think the line of the movie was delivered by the journalist was, it is, that's so Miami. That's so Miami. That was Jim yeah. DeFeedy, by the way, who's yeah. another legend that you get in there. Uh, he was behind yeah. a lot of the coverage on this as it went through the 80s. Uh, you know, he was part of what was, you know, as far as covering those stories and whatnot. I know you have a great working relationship with Defeaty. What was that like working with him on this and you guys having such a similar vision on the things that went on back then and yet stories that go untold as time goes on? When Jim Defeaty moved down to Miami, the Willie and Sal trial uh, and the lead up to the first trial in 95-96 was the first major story that he covered down here, and it turned out to be a quintessential Miami story. Um, it, it, it is, in and of itself, he describes later in the series, the story of Miami in, in many ways, um, uh, when we kind of sum it up in the end. Uh, but Jim was the only person, you know, beyond like some daily news coverage, there was some great coverage in the Herald and on the local news, but that was kind of day-to-day stuff. Jim was the only journalist who did a deep dive, and he did it over and over and over again uh, in a series of fantastic cover stories and follow-ups in the Miami New Times, who really invested in, in this journalism and created a record, um, you know, a historical record of this extraordinary uh, time in, 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 our, in our community. And, and the Miami New Times, if you go to the website, they've actually uh, posted Jim's original reporting so that people can, can kind of do a deep dive and learn even more about the story now that the, 
the documentary uh, series is out. It's uh, it's a true testament to how he really stayed up with it, and I and I I can honestly tell you, Billy, that as you say the story and we go back and and, and many of us that lived through it remember certain things. There are so many people that have no clue. None whatsoever that this went on. Frank says he shares a story that his mom moved here in 87. She had no idea about any of this. Like, this this was not part of, like, she moved to Miami not knowing what was going on in Miami and, that, and didn't know any of this was going on. And I just think there's a lot of people that don't necessarily know that that's what was happening. And, and more importantly, I think it's because we think the drug wars involve violence. And these guys found a way to not be very violent at this. Like, they, I mean... Uh, at the beginning... Uh, you're, you know, <laughs> maybe I'm not. Maybe you're, I'm not episode four yet. Maybe that's why I don't you're know. Only, yeah, you're only a little ways in. You're, you're a little ways in. Oh, okay, but, so we can't but, give away the finale here. Okay, I got no, you. No, but no. The the, the 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 truth is, is that they were known at the time, and this was confirmed, in fact, by the FBI and the U.S. Attorney's Office, that they were not known. Their reputation was not as a violent drug trafficking organization. They were not the the cocaine cowboys that we saw in the first documentary who were enforcing the trade, uh, which was a consignment business of a very expensive product worth more than, than gold. I mean, wholesale, a kilo was going for over $40,000 in Miami that. That was at crazy. that time. <laughs> yeah. So when you're, when you're giving people that kind of weight on consignment, you, you know, the only way you, you don't take them to the people's court if they don't pay up. I mean, you have to, you have to enforce it your own way. But um, that's not how William and Sal uh, were known to, to operate. Uh, someone describes them as the Robin Hoods of the drug trade uh, at the time, uh, where they were very uh, compassionate. And um, if you lost the load, it was all good. They trusted you. You know, you made it up uh, some other time, um, but they didn't come after you. And if you needed help and you were in the community, I mean, they gave money to churches. They gave money to um, uh, organizations, even some paramilitary organizations that were looking to uh, invade Cuba and, and overthrow Castro. In fact, that was the reason why uh, uh, Willie Falcone later argued that he should not be deported uh, to Cuba because of his support of an the anti-Castro uh, groups here in Miami at the time. And if you just needed rent money or mortgage money or tuition money for your kids, uh, you could go to Sal, like kind of Don Corleone style, and and ask for for a favor. Yep, and there's people in this community that did it all the time, and there were even schools in this community that did it. It's incredible. I'm not going to get into that, but you know, I, you know what I'm talking about. I'll just leave it at that. You, I'm most marvelled at how you got so much sincerity from uh, Alexia Echeverria. She's uh, she's quite the young lady. I, I I've had an opportunity to meet her on a couple of occasions and know her and and some of her people and whatnot, particularly her her ex husband. Um, he's not ex, he's her, her widow now, but how in the world did you get her to be so forthcoming for crying out loud? She's usually close to the, like, she seemed to just open up with you guys and was willing to say everything. She was dynamite. Yeah, Lexi is great. And I think, you know, she, she told me, she's like, you know, talked about how Andy Cohen was always trying to get her to open up about this on the Real Housewives of Miami. And she was always a little hesitant. You know, they did cover her ex-husband, Pedro Rosello, and, you know, who went to federal prison, of course, mm -hmm. the, as a, a co-defendant in the Willie and Sal case. And she talks a little bit about it with her sons in, in, on, on the early seasons of that show. And I just think she wasn't ready at that time, you know. And now 
Um, she's had an extraordinary life and, and, and undergone several tragedies, including the loss of, of her, her second husband. Yes. Um, that was I, I knew him personally. Just, yeah. Herman and, Herman. and uh, rest in peace. And, and, you know, I think she just, I think she was just at a moment where she was ready. You know, she wanted, because a lot of people, when they do interviews about these particularly, I guess, traumatizing parts of their lives, sometimes they find it cathartic, you know, to kind of get it off their chest, you know, and, and I think she was just at a, at a moment in between seasons of uh, The Real Housewives of Miami, which is back in production uh, now, and I think starting up again uh, later this year, uh, she was just ready uh, to, to talk about it, and she had man. Did she talk about it? I mean, she said some things I was not expecting, and I and I could not uh, believe. I mean, there's a moment during a one particular scene in Coconut Grove during a bust where she turns into like Lorraine Bracco from Goodfellas. <laughs> absolutely wild. You know? If anybody remembers that scene, that's uh, yeah, you hit that one on the head. She's um she's animated, but she was she was she stole the show almost. Like she really did a great job of kind of taking us there and, and describing her role in all this, the, the B-roll footage that you put together, the old pictures, the old scenes, that you do set an amazing tone as the stories are being told. Um, you, I said this as we started the interview, Billy. Every one of your documentaries has somebody who, I, I don't tend to do this, but the kids aren't in school, that you always have someone that makes you say, oh, shit. Like, you know, there's always someone in your documentary you go, my goodness, could this guy have been more like... Uh, and in this one, I, I'm not sure if it's the cocaine, the, the drug dealer from the beginning, from episode one, or if it's Alexia, but the combination of them telling the story has been amazing. What kind of feedback have you gotten, not just from the community, but from your fans? I mean, some of the best reviews of our career, you know, which at this point is spanned over 20 years. So it's very heartening when you work for, on something for this long, for 12 years, and it finally comes out and you just, you know, it's a, it's a real birthing process. You know, you, you're, you know, you, you craft it, you do your best and you, you send it out into the world and see if it'll sink or swim, you know, and see what people think. And, and, uh, it's very, I get, I get really anxious. It's very stressful. And, and you, you, you kind of hold your breath and, and I've, I breathed a sigh of relief. I will say over the last 12 hours or so, the feedback has been by and large, pretty, pretty wonderful. Um, and, uh, you know, this is our projects for the most part are Miami in Miami out. I mean, Miami is the muse, right? She's mm -hmm. the inspiration for the stories that we tell. And then the Miami community embracing the work and those stories is so much a part of the of our success, uh, internationally. It's when Miami co-signs, you know, as, as a community. And, and so, uh, I always say the measure of a successful filmmaker is not money or reviews or critical acclaim or awards. It's that you get to work again. And the only way you get to work again is if an audience finds the work and, and appreciates the work and, and consumes it and watches it. And so uh, we are number three this morning on Netflix in the United States. Uh, and um, not, not good enough, but, but we're on our way. Who are the two that are beating you, if you don't mind me asking? I'm actually curious. Probably Coco Melon. Don't say that. If it's Coco Melon, um, Billy, it doesn't count. Number one is Outer Banks, whatever the oh, hell that is. Gosh. New episodes, it says, of, yeah, of Outer Banks. Just I don't hit. know what any of that means. Yeah, it's a garbage it, It's not show. for me, obviously. Not for me. Different audience. It's garbage. My kids watch it. It's garbage. 
Another one is called All American. That's number two. Oh, we, we got to oh, do something yeah, about yeah, that. Yeah, 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 yeah. But it's no, a young crowd taking over. That's there. fine, but Billy, Billy's, Billy's work is a masterpiece. It needs to be number one. Like, it really is. And well, all, all kidding aside, yes, I'm a huge fan of yours. You're a good friend of mine. So I'm going to always back whatever you do, right? But you even yourself have said, I've, I've put some crap together and I've put some good stuff. Like, I think our last interview, you said something. Look, I put this, I had to pay some bills. Like, you know, like I, I, you know, there's some stuff you do that you just have to do. And then there's other things, you know, that you do. And you know that you put a lot of time and effort into it. And I'm very proud to know you. I'm very proud to tell anybody who's willing to listen that when you did the screening for the U2, like, you called me. Like, hey, I got I got C for you and your son. Get over here. Um, you know, I love knowing that, you find it important to hear from me what I think about what you put together, which I'm always going to tell you is magnificent. But all kidding aside, this might be your best work. I, and I'm only three eps in, and this might be your best work because it's delivered in your manner, but the story is so scintillating. And the stories that you're getting from the people you interview are so scintillating that it's just, if you're from Miami, you, you're captivated. And I tell you, you got to watch this. And if you're not from Miami, it makes you wonder, this was here in the United States? This was going on here in America in the 80s? I had no idea. So it's an eye-opener for some, and it's a reminder for others where we came from. And I think that's what makes it as great as it is. Well, if you're only halfway through, I've got three more hours to disappoint you. Oh, so no. <laughs> call me, call me. Call me after you finish episode six and tell me what you think, please. Deal. I promise you I'll text you on that one for sure. Billy Corbin, <laughs> always a pleasure to have you on our show. You know you're a friend of the program, friend of the station. We would like to have you. I want to have a series of roundtables with our students as they return. I, I know that's all individual preference, whether we're going into buildings or not, but at some point I'd love for you to come in. You could speak to our students and do one of our roundtables that we have planned this year with them on air, by the way. So in Absolutely. The Anytime. And thank you for having me. It was a pleasure, Frank, and also Amigo. Much love to you, me bro. Thanks, Billy. I love having him on the uh, on the show with us. He's he's dynamic and is it kind of cool that you said it? I called him and ten minutes later we had him on the like. Is that kind of cool to you or is that not? Uh, it's yeah. not kind of cool. That's cool. That's why I told you. I was like, yo, don't hesitate, bro. That's, That's your boy. boy. <laughs> Billy's gonna jump on, man. And if he has like five minutes in between shows, you know he's gonna he take does that. five minutes he's and jump really on with us. And he's gonna let us know, guys. I only have five minutes, and he's gonna talk. And when he talks, it's gonna be nine minutes long. And he's gonna be late to his other one, but he still made it a point to come to your show. I'm gonna make this a point before I go to break. I always celebrate those friends of the program. We have a friend of the program. We call him the best available Cuban. Best Available Cuban's name is Will Manso. He is the sports director at Local 10 News here in Miami, Florida. He is a very good friend of ours here. He's a very good friend of Slam's. His daughters attended Slam at some point in their life. And he's a close personal friend of mine. Um, I believe it was yesterday he lost his father. Uh, his dad passed away. And I want to express our deepest condolences to Will. Uh, not just a stand-up guy, but a true friend uh, through and through. And when you have a show called Good Morning Amigo, he's one of our amigos indeed. And uh, not only in our prayers, brother, but in our in our well wishes, uh, I know the old man has to be proud of you. I'm proud to call you a friend. And I wish you the very best. My prayers and my condolences, our prayers and our condolences to you, Will Manso, and your entire family on the loss of your father. We love you very, very much, brother, and uh, hope to hear from you sooner than later. But again, you know, you have a bunch of amigos here for you here at Slam Radio. On the other side, we'll keep it continue. Good morning, amigos. Sirius XM 145, Slam Radio.